I don't want to oversimplify this, but there's relatively no objection to the idea that the Scriptures teach that Christians should confront each other in sin, right? When, when, when one of us have fallen, there's, there's relatively no objection that, that the rest of us should do something about it. That the rest of us should gather around that person in one way or another, that we should approach that sin, that we should address that sin, and that we should help each other take care of that sin. Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. James chapter 5 and verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We have passages like that 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 show us that we should be doing this, that each one of us should be helping each other when we make mistakes and when we sin and we stumble and we give in to our temptations, either our physical temptations or our pride or so forth. We, we understand that. The problem is that, I mean, let's face it, there are drastically different ways of doing that in, in some of our minds. Some of us may be more uh, of the personality that you just, you know, when you have a problem, you fix it. One of the toughest things that, um, Becca and I have been married for uh, five years now. Sorry, I had to do math. Uh, for five years now, one of the toughest things that I'm still working through is that I have that type of personality. When there's a problem, you just fix it. And so Becca will have a problem, and she'll tell me that problem, and I'll look at her, and I'll say, you haven't figured out how to fix this yet? Here's how to do it. Here's three steps to fix this problem. Here's this thing, okay? If you need this problem, if you have this problem, here's how to fix it. Just boom, done. End of discussion. Just take care of that. We'll take care of this. And and most of the time, men, if you're like me and your wives are like Rebecca, most of the time that's exactly not what they want, right? They don't don't want us to just tell them how to fix it even though we're right 99.999% of the time. Anyway, so there's, there's the personality that when there's a problem, you just fix it. But there are other personalities, there are other ways of approaching it. There are personalities and ways that, that in my opinion, end up doing more harm than good. I mean, you, you probably know people that, that were once faithful members of the body of Christ, but because of some sin, they fell away. And then because of the way that a Christian approached that sin... They are now farther than they were to begin with, right? We, we know that situation. If you aren't in that situation, you haven't seen it, you can, you can understand that. There, I mean, listen, none of us like being told that we've made a mistake. None of us like being told that something needs to be fixed or that there's a problem. And so we can understand that that's the case. We know that we're supposed to help, but for the most part, we don't really talk about how we're supposed to help very often. And so that's what I thought we'd do. Uh, this morning, let's talk about how we're supposed to help. Now, there are a couple things we need to mention before we get to that point. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Some of your translations may say, mark that individual, mark that person. And have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed the ESV reads ashamed the word means inverted okay that he may be inverted that he may be ashamed listen 
Sin should shame us. If we are not ashamed of our sin, if we're not ashamed of our wrongdoings, we've either become desensitized to it or we just don't know that we did anything wrong. You know, that's, that's a very real possibility that you and I can, can step over the line which God has dr- drawn, in the, drawn in the sand. I mean, that's what the word sin means. It means to miss the mark like, a, like an archer would miss the target or like a... You know, some other person who's shooting a firearm would miss. I don't do that. But other people might miss the target. No, I'm just playing. Anyways, so that's what the word means. That should make us ashamed, okay? Let's just go ahead and and acknowledge that so that we stop trying to prance around sin so that no one gets offended. No one. Listen, sin is offensive by nature. That's why it is offensive. Someone asked, what is sin? All right, Titus chapter 2 says that God cannot sin. It's because it's not because it's outside of his possibilities, not because he, he can't do something that would be wrong. It's because if he did that, he would cease to be God. And God is the same now as he was a thousand years ago, and as he was five thousand years ago, and seven thousand years ago when he created the world. And he's the same now as he has been in eternity, and the same as he will ever be in eternity. And so the reason why he can't sin is because it, it's, it's impossible for him because his nature, his nature never changes. And so if he were to sin, his nature would change, but that's impossible for him. That's why he can't. But what sin is, is when God tells us how to live like him, because that's how we get to be with him for eternity. And so if we're going to live with him for eternity, we have to go to the place where he is, right? Which is called heaven. You can't be in heaven if you're not like him. And so he gives us a law book. He gives us a code book, a a, a code of laws that, that tells us, here's how to be like me. The Old Testament, he was getting them ready. The New Testament, we have everything in common. We have the fullness, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 8 through 13 mentioned. And so we have the complete way. The New Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, are how people can live and be in the same character as God if we'll follow it. The problem is, because of man's being on earth for roughly 7,000 years now, and the fact that we have... For the entire time, completely and utterly destroyed the way that we were supposed to be living. Now we've come to a point where it's, it's our nature. Not that we were created this way, but that by long-standing practice, by nature, we've, we've become a people who can't really see past sin. Because we've given into it for so long, and we've seen all of our relatives give into it for so long, that now it's just, it's just second nature, it's just who we are. And so, he gave us this book so that we could follow it and be like him. Sin is not just breaking a rule, okay? That's what we're trying to get here is that when you, when you sin, when you commit a wrong in the eyes of God, it is not just breaking a rule, some rule that was made because of, you know, most rules are there because someone else has broken that rule. I'm of the opinion, and you can, you can be wrong if you prefer, but I'm of the opinion that speed limits should be relative. That when you turn 16, you should go and take a test. And they determine how fast you can drive. 
And that way, I can drive just however fast I want. Within reason, because I'll have on my paper that says, Lee can drive so fast. And so-and-so can drive so fast. The reason why we have speed limits is because we can't be trusted, right? You and I can't be trusted to drive relatively as fast as we can handle. Because I think I'm a lot better driver than I actually am. And so, breaking a law of God is not like breaking a law of man. Breaking a law of man is is put in place, the law is, so that we can all, you know, we can all live peaceably. and, And also so that, you know, most of the time when a law or when a rule is passed, it's because someone messed up. Someone did something crazy, and now we have to make a rule about it. We have to make a law about it. For instance, um, when I was in, I'll just give you a little, little illustration. When I was in preaching school, we had a rule that was, you do not wear shorts, period, across the board. If you're a student at the Memphis School of Preaching, you do not wear shorts, which gave way to everyone thinking that if you're a student at Memphis School of Preaching, you wear a suit 24-7, which is not true, but there is a rule that you don't wear shorts. Do you know why there's a rule that you don't wear shorts? Because someone wore t- shorts that were too short. When I, in my college group, in college, the elders came in one day to our, our college meeting room, and we were having a Bible study, and one of the elders said, listen, we, we're going we're gonna to have to put a rule in place, and this rule is um, there will be no shorts at any function of the Jacksonville Church of Christ college group, period. No shorts. Just don't wear shorts. And the reason is because a few weeks before that, we were on campaign. We were out down in Darien, Georgia, door knocking, and a guy was wearing shorts. And a picture was taken with him sitting in such a way that they went way too high. And so the elders said, enough's enough. We're just going to make a rule. They weren't mad about it. They just wanted to make a rule so that no one else would. That's not the same kind of rule that we see in the Scriptures. When we see a law in Scripture, it is because it is an extension of, of God. He gave us the book so that we can live like him. And so 2 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, says that when we are confronted by sin, we should be ashamed because we have failed to live up to the standard of God's character. That's why we should be ashamed. And that should not make us queasy. It should not make us nervous. The, the reason why the concept that sin will make us nervous or sin will make us ashamed makes us nervous is because we have we've treated each other so bad because of sin in the past that we're scared to be ashamed because we don't want to get into that same position that we have been in the past and that's just across the board and so we need to just go ahead and assume that when we're talking about helping one another in our sins we need to understand that that the point of it is to make us ashamed to make us inverted. It, you may have already figured this out. It's the idea that your stomach flips upside down. Have y'all ever, have y'all ever been driving at your approved speed down the road and you hit a bump and your stomach drops out, right? Y'all, y'all felt that before? Now, have you ever been in the situation where, um, oh, I don't know, there's three weeks left in the month and and I, I remember one time in, in preaching school, we got, we got support monthly, and so there were three weeks left in the month, 
And I was supposed to go home later that month to see Rebecca because that was kind of a, a, a stipulation is that you're going to come home and see me every now and then. And so there were three weeks left and I checked my bank account and somehow, I don't know how, but there was no money in that bank account. Probably because I went to like Burger King 17 times that week and all that. But anyways, you've had that feeling, right? When your stomach just kind of seizes up and drops out and you don't. That's the feeling that Paul says is supposed to come when we're confronted by sin. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. We withdraw our fellowship from an individual who is in sin so that when they see that their entire family has had to say, we can't have anything to do with you, their stomach will drop out. Now that gives us the implication then that we should be close enough so that when we withdraw from someone, their stomach drops out. Because now their, their, entire, their entire family has had to say, as long as you're choosing to live like this, we can't choose to be around you. So that's one thing that we need to get settled before we do that. But also, turn to 1 Timothy chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 20. 1 Timothy 1, verse 20. This is verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and with a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's exactly what Paul did. He withdrew his fellowship. He withdrew himself from Hymenaeus and Alexander in order to make their stomach churn. But it didn't work. They had decided to keep on blaspheming, keep on preaching false doctrines and believing false doctrines. Now, here's the question. This book is written to an individual, Timothy, with the understanding. Paul understood that what he was writing was inspiration of Scripture. What he was writing was by the authority of Christ. And the likelihood that someone else was going to read this letter written to Timothy is pretty high. In fact, 2,000 years later, it's in a book collected with 26 other books called the New Testament that is one of the, well, it is the highest selling book in all human history. It's, the average is that every single one of us has two of them at our house, not just us, but the entirety of the United States, that, that the United States as a, as a country has two of these in every single household, okay? That's a lot of times that Hymenaeus and Alexander just got called out in front of everybody. So the question is, why did Paul decide to call out Hymenaeus and Alexander in front of everyone for all perpetuity, for every single Christian that would live, that would ever read the book that he wrote to Timothy? Why did he choose to do that? Well, number one, it's so that their heart, their stomach could churn, so that they... So that they could be ashamed. Because apparently Hymenaeus and Alexander knew Timothy. And maybe Timothy could have some influence on them if he withdraws from them. Because Paul, obviously, it didn't work. But also, 
Remember back in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14, where it says, note those, mark those men, mark the people that do this? There comes a point in time when each one of us have sinned to the point that we're unrepentant, that we don't care, that we don't want to fix it, or that we think that we're okay and we're rationalizing our sin in some way. And other people need to know that so that we don't bring them down. And so what we need to understand is, number one, confronting sin is for the point of making us ashamed. Number two, confronting sin is for the point that other people can, can know that you need to watch out for so-and-so because he may bring you down after all because he's living in this way and we don't want other people to be influenced by him to live in that way and think that it's approved by God. Why did Paul call out Hymenaeus and Alexander? Here's the reason. People needed to know that Hymenaeus and Alexander were not just some, some Christians that made a mistake, stumbled, and repented of it. If that was the case, he might have written their names down so that other people could learn and be encouraged by what they did. The reason he wrote their names down is because Hymenaeus and Alexander were going to be a problem for someone and Paul wanted them to know, stay away from these people. And the fact of the matter is that there comes a time in sin where we have, to, we have to do that. We have to say, enough is enough. We can't have anything to do with you if you're going to keep acting like this. If you're going to keep living in this sinful way, we can't fellowship you. And we have to tell other people about this so that they aren't held down by you as well. So, those things um, understood. Let's look at a couple people that need this kind of treatment, that need confronting because of their sin. Number one is the unrepentant, the people that, that will not repent of sins. Maybe it's because they don't even know. Matthew chapter 18 is very clear. It's, it's extremely clear that when you go to a person who is in sin, that has sinned against you, you're not doing it just to bash them over the head. You're doing it to point something out because maybe they didn't even understand. If you're like me, um, sometimes my mouth goes faster than my brains. Y'all ever had that problem before? And sometimes I'll say something that is a little, it, it will upset someone. Specifically, maybe it'll upset Rebecca. I'll say something. I didn't mean it in a bad way. I just, I said it and, and I didn't really understand how she would take it. And so she comes to me and says, listen, I, I didn't think that that was appropriate. Oh, I didn't know you felt that way. Someone else does something that upsets you or that offends you or that makes you stumble. And you go to that person and say it. And they say, I'm sorry, I, I honestly did not know that that was the case. But also, maybe they do know it's the case. And you're going to that person because they haven't repented of it yet. And you want them to know that you want them to repent. That, that this is something that is serious, that you have wronged me, and you need to repent. Also, <clears throat> the second person, the person who, who practices sin that is characteristic of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. The lists of sin in the, in the New Testament. Do you know that those lists of sin in the New Testament, fornication, idolatry, uncleanness, lasciviousness, those sorts of things. The list of sin. You know that those specific words do not name every single type of sin, right? Those are the sins that are common in the world. There's a sin that is prevalent among Christians today. In every single congregation across the world. In every country. 
And the sin is a lack of interest in worship services. Do you know that that's not really characteristic of the world in general? Because, well, they, they don't need to go to worship services of the Lord's church because it means nothing to them. Someone asks you the question, what, what if a visitor comes to the worship services? Should we just... Should we just make sure that they don't touch the plates that pass the Lord's Supper so that they may not eat the cracker and drink the grape juice? It means absolutely nothing to them. It's just a snack break in the middle of a somewhat boring service to a, member, to a person that's not a member of the body. It means nothing to them. It means something to us, right? If we take that and we don't focus on the birth and death and and life and ministry and resurrection of Jesus and all that is wrapped up in him coming to earth. If we take that and we don't think about those things and we don't focus on those things, we've sinned. The person, the person who's not a member of the church, it's just, a, it's just a cracker and a little bitty glass of grape juice, right? But those lists of sin are characteristic of the world. Fornication, idolatry, lasciviousness, drunkenness, Revelry. Those lists of sins, when a Christian takes part in those, they've thrown their they've they've thrown their confession of Christ to the wind, and now they're taking on the world rather than Christ. And so the scriptures say that those types of people, those people that are taken in that, need to be addressed by their sins. Advocates of false doctrine. We already talked about that. Those who decide, decide to withdraw themselves from the people of God and his doctrine. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 6. Hymenaeus and Alexander. The people who withdraw themselves. Why do we need to go to the people that aren't here anymore? Can you make a list of people that aren't here anymore because they, they still live here, but they just don't come anymore? Why do we need to go to them and confront them about it? Because they've withdrawn themselves from the body. I have a good friend, Jim. Not that Jim, a different Jim. I have a good he's he's a good friend too. But anyways, I have a good friend Jim. Jim Merle had a had a heart transplant four years ago. And he was on the list for a very, very long time. And he finally got a donor. He went, he had the heart transplant, and he is doing great. But there for a long time after the transplant, they were terrified that his heart was going to reject, right? Because it was now part of the body. It was part of his body. But it, they were worried that the heart wasn't going to, as if it had a mind of its own, like working with the rest of his body. And if that were to be the case, I, I remember talking to Jim, what happens if it is, if it is rejected? What, what, what goes on? I remember this conversation. Well, then I gotta start back from square one. I gotta, I gotta find another one. You see, when part of the body decides to withdraw itself from the rest of the body, you have to address that. And that's what the scriptures teach us to do to go to the people who've withdrawn themselves and confront them about it. All right, last but not least, those who cause occasions for stumbling, who initiate division in the local family, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, Titus chapter 3. In verse 10, and numerous other passages. The, the entire first half of 1 Timothy chapter 6 deal with people who continuously cause division in the church and how we should address that fact. Now, 
here's where the rubber meets the road. How do we do this? Okay, Those are the things we need to understand. Number one, that it should shame us, that sin should make our stomachs turn. If not, it's because we either don't realize we've sinned, or we've become so desensitized to it, that there's another problem altogether. Number two, we need to understand that at times it will take the public calling out of people because you can't have other people influenced by someone who is unrepentant. Number three, we need to realize that the people who we need to go to are not just the person who is teaching false doctrine. Okay, Some people think that, well, you know, as long as they're not teaching it, that's fine. Do you know the, the number, the percentage of people who teach false doctrine versus the number of people who are in sin that are members of the body of Christ? I can put a list together of preachers who teach false doctrine all over the United States. But that list is going to be very small compared to the members of individual congregations who have slipped away and no one, no one notices to the members of the individual congregations who are influenced by sin and have now taken on sins of the world into their lives and they're living those out and no one is talking about them. The idea that the only type of sin we need to address publicly, that we need to address at all, is public professing, public teaching of false doctrine, is completely missing the vast majority of the New Testament scriptures on what it means to go to someone else. So... Number one, here's how we do it. Have the right heart. Have a godly heart while you're doing it. You're not going to win a battle. You're not going to win a fight or win an argument. You're not going to make them feel bad, even though that's what should happen. They should feel ashamed. They should, they, their heart, their, their stomach should turn because they realize it. But you're not going to make them feel bad. You're going because they need it. And the fact is that every single person in this room is going to need it at one point or another. If we haven't yet, it's because you're a fairly new Christian. And just wait a little bit. You'll get there. You will sin and you will need someone to point it out to you. And we do it because if I were in the same position, I'd want someone to point it out to me. You're not doing it to go and win a battle. You're not doing it to to make yourself feel good. You're doing it because it's for the betterment of them the betterment of the church, and the betterment of you as well. Because eventually, it may come to the point that you're in that same sin that they were. And you can realize where where they were, and you can help yourself out of that sin. Number two, realize how they could react. I just want to read a couple scriptures for you. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 13, 13, verse 1. A wise son hears his father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Hebrews 12, and verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the, pleasant, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All discipline is painful for the minute, but after a while it produces righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I'll never forget the day that I was sitting at the feet of, of a very well-known preacher. It was right after I became a Christian. And he had a whiteboard. And he wrote on that whiteboard a straight line. And then next to it, he wrote a curvy line. And he said, 
most Christians, most Christians think that the faithful life is a life that is a straight line. You live your life from the moment you're baptized, maybe it's at age 17 or 18, maybe it's at age 62, or I I don't know how old. But you live your life, if you're going to go to heaven, you have to live your life in a a straight line. From the moment you're baptized to the moment you die, it's got to be a straight line all toward Christ. Well, the fact is, no one lives like that. No one. It's always kind of a windy road, and you stray off a little bit, and you realize, I've got to fix this, and you go back. And then you go somewhere else. You've heard me say a thousand times, never, ever, ever say, I will never have a problem with that sin. Because the moment you have, you have allowed yourself to let your guard down in that area. And, you know, I'll never have a problem with that. I have a problem with this. Once you get past that problem, you've let your guard down over here and it's going to happen. I guarantee you it's going to happen. I'm living proof it'll happen. And so this is from experience as much as it is from knowledge of the scriptures, okay? No one lives their life in a straight line. Everyone lives their, their faith in a kind of curvy line that strays a little bit and we get back. Strays a little bit and we get back. And the purpose of that is so that we can continually remember the sacrifice of Christ. First John chapter 1. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is walking in the light, that means you're in Christ and you're remaining in Christ, that you're working toward being in Christ. If you walk in the light as he's in the light, You'll have fellowship with one another. We need to realize that no one lives in a straight line. And the fact is that when we're converted, we have only started the process. But each person has different ways that they approach sin. Each person has a way, has a different way that they that they deal with sin. We have to realize that at some point, they may take it in a bad way. They may get upset. They may, they may strike back. Have you ever had a person that was caught in sin that you lovingly, carefully approached them about it? And they said, well, yeah, but you've got this problem. Well, yeah, I do have that problem. Maybe I can help you with this and you can help me with that. Because I'm not living in a straight line and you definitely aren't living in a straight line and so let's try to, you know, somehow get our lines to cross over every now and then together. Right? We have to realize that sometimes they may take it in a bad way. But just because they may take it in a bad way does not mean that we are somehow absolved of the obligation to do it. just means that we should do it in a maybe a more careful way. Maybe we should do it understanding that they're going to get upset. Because sometimes getting upset is what it takes for a person to realize something is wrong. Remember, I'm the kind of person that just wants to fix a problem. I'm also the kind of person that if you make me mad enough, I will fix it myself because I'll figure out that I'm wrong. I've told you the story about when I was learning learning the truth and learning the New Testament, and I I came to this realization that members of the Church of Christ do not use instruments in worship. And so I wrote a 13-page document on why we should use instruments in worship. And I came to Bible study the next Wednesday night. We had an underground Bible, literally underground. It was in the basement of a building. An underground Bible study. And I came with that document. And my good friend Dalton took a red pen that next week and wrote, I mean, it looked like he had massacred or 
offered a goat as a sacrifice or something on top of that piece of paper. It was horrible. It was completely red. I don't know why he used red, probably to make a point. But anyways, I got so mad that I said, I'm going to prove Dalton wrong. And I wrote this document. And when I realized that what I had written was not correct, I got so mad that I said, okay, you're right. Sometimes... Sometimes we need to make each other mad a little bit so that we can realize the sins that are in our own lives. We need to realize how they're going to understand it, how they're going to take it. That doesn't mean that every person is going to get upset. But if they do get upset, don't think that somehow because they may get upset that you don't have to approach it. You still have to. It may be tougher, but you still have to. And number three, you have to do it a little bit at a time. you have a person who has left the church, maybe they have withdrawn themselves from the fellowship like we were talking about a minute ago, and it was years and years and years ago, the chances are whatever brought them away from the church is not the only problem now, right? I mean, the longer we're away, one of the reasons why we need to provoke each other to love and to good works, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, is because the longer that we are away from each other, the weaker we get. So if it's been years and years since they were in the church and they were faithful, and now for some reason some sin took them away, they withdrew themselves, and now they've been gone for for a year, two years, five years, 15 years, chances are there's not just going to be one problem they need to fix. There's going to be a lot of problems they need to fix. And so maybe that one thing that gets them started is just coming to worship services. Maybe that one thing that gets them started on the path back to Christ is addressing that one sin that took them away so long ago. Whatever it is, do it progressively at times. Now, what about the person who hasn't withdrawn themselves that is still faithful to a degree, but, but they've had, they have some, some sin that they're overtaking in right now? What do we do about that? It makes it much easier, right? You have one problem you need to deal with. Help them with that one problem. Now, in this discussion is the idea that we're not just pointing it out. We're not just saying, hey, uh, you know, you're messing up right here. And then you just walk away. Remember that Galatians 6 and verse 10 says, bear one another's burdens. We're not just pointing it out and then leaving. We're pointing it out and then saying, okay, I'm right here to help you through this, whatever it takes. If it means that I'll be an accountability partner for you, if it means that I've, I've, had, I've had people who were overtaken in some sin and the way we figured out that we needed to fix it was they would call me every single morning at 10 a.m. I remember one, one of the guys that I went to preaching school with after, after we graduated there for about six months after we graduated, he had a problem and every single day he would call me at 10 a.m. and say, I'm doing good today. Perfect. Let's fix this one problem. I'm here for whatever it takes. We're going to fix this problem and get you back where you need to be. That's the way that we have to be with one another. Because we're supposed to be bearing one another's burdens. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Someone brings him back. You walk the, the path with him to bring him back. If someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering 
will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see, James wasn't unintelligent. He knew what he was talking about. He knew that sometimes when you're walking someone back, you've got to deal with a lot of sins. You've got to deal with a lot of different types of sins. And it's okay. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, bring him back. And when you do it, realize that you have covered a multitude of sins. If there's someone here that's overtaken in some sin, you need to repent of it. We're here to help you. We're here to walk alongside you, but you need to repent of it. You need to fix it. If you don't know what it is, maybe this week one of your brothers and sisters in Christ will approach you about it. And just know that don't get upset when someone corrects you. Because you wouldn't want someone to get upset when you corrected them. Because we're in this together. If you need to repent of a public sin, then we're willing and able to help you with that. We'll take that confession. We'll pray on your behalf. And we'll be right beside you to walk the way back. But if you aren't a Christian, that means you've got a bigger problem. And the problem is that you haven't confessed Christ. You haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins. You haven't submitted yourself to Christ at all. And you need to fix that right now. If you're willing to be baptized for the remission of your sins, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. If you need public repentance, let us know that as we stand and Gary leads us in this song.